0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, May 10th, 2011, we're so glad to have you here. This is a really fun night, it is a uh, second panel discussion on passion-based education with Amy Sandvold, Angela Myers, George Koros, and
1: Lisa Nielsen,
0: so welcome everybody. They're all being sensitive about their mics, but say hi in the chat, I guess, or feel free to take
1: the mic if you want to say something I'll really jump quickly.
2: In. I'm so happy to see you all.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Angela. Most appreciated. So
0: the future of education is now sponsored, in addition to uh, sponsored by in addition to Learn Central and Wimba Illuminate, which is now part of Blackboard, but my own Web 2.0 Labs project, which is at web20labs.com. Includes Classroom 2.0, the Global Education Conference, Library 2.0, Aula 2.0, our Spanish Network, and the Future of Education, as well as Student 2.0. Uh, this is a quick reminder that EduBloggerCon is coming up. It's the Saturday before ISTE. This is a free event. You do not need to be attending ISTE to attend EduBloggerCon. It is in Philadelphia, Our, our many thanks to ISTE. They provide the room and the wireless network. This is a really fun event. We build the... Ed- agenda at the start of the day. Um, really a lot of fun at bloggercon.com. Sure I hope that if you're in that area or you can make it that you'll be able to stop by. Uh, at ISTE we also have the Bloggers Cafe uh, which is a blast and ISTE Unplug uh, where you can actually present uh, both to an audience there and live streamed through Illuminate which we're now calling Blackboard Collaborate. Um, and that's at ISTEUnplugged.com. Anybody can sign up. Just go to ISTEUnplugged.com, and it is a wiki. I did a Twitter poll yesterday to ask about t-shirts, <laughs> because uh, we're going to print up some t-shirts. And the overwhelming favorite slogan for the t-shirts was Teacher 2.0. So that's probably what it's going to be. can't give you a final word yet, but it should be a lot of fun. We have also announced the 2011 Global Education Conference. So on the heels of last year's really fun five-day, hour day event. We're going to do it again November 14th to 18th. That matches uh, International Education Week. So uh, more information at globaleducationconference.com. So um, I, I want to first apologize to this particular panel. Uh, I listened to the panel discussion that we did about 10 days ago. Uh, for the ASTE conference. And um, I, I, a couple of times, (laughs) stepped on some toes. I don't know that it was that obvious, but I did, um, in the pressure for time, move forward a little too quickly at a couple of moments. And hopefully tonight we'll get a chance to cover any basis that didn't get covered before. Uh, That was a really fun discussion for me. And I'm going to put the link to that recording in the chat for anybody who would like to listen to it. And there you go. Uh, it's also on my blog post for tonight's event at stevehargadon.com, that link. So if you want to go back and listen to that session, you can. If you missed that session, don't worry. It's not as though you're going to feel like you're coming into the middle of the conversation because there's such a, it's such a rich topic. But I think you'll really enjoy this. Um, but let's do some brief introductions again. Let's go in order of the photographs on the whiteboard there uh, and just give us a quick um, but, you know, a very short introduction as to who you are and how you come into this conversation. So I'll start with you, Amy. Hi,
3: everybody. Um, so glad that we're here again together. I've been really looking forward to this. So hi to the panelists and everyone. Um, I'm a principal of a pre-K through 8 school, soon to be opening, a hopefully passion-driven middle school. So hopefully we can talk about that, too. So I'm um, very excited to be here. Thank you.
2: Hi, everybody. I'm Angela Myers and I'm a passionate lifelong learner and I um, get to help bring that passionate learner out in a big classroom called Twitter and uh, work with schools and teachers, just reminding them of how powerful they are every day. So I'm so happy to be here tonight.
4: Hey, everyone. I'm George and I'm uh, currently a principal in Stony Plain, Alberta, Canada. I have a K-12 school. and I'm very uh, focused on bringing out the passions of my students and my staff and looking forward to doing it at a school division level next year.
5: And My name is Lisa Nielsen and I'm passionate about passion rather than data and standard driven learning and I write about it and talk about it. Um, and you can read about it on my blog, The Innovative Educator.
0: So thanks to each of you for that. Really appreciate it. Uh, Just a quick reminder, tomorrow night, Hugh McGuire comes on from LibriVox.org. If you don't know LibriVox, it's the great crowdsourced recording program. The rest of the schedule's up there. If you've missed any sessions in the Future of Education, they are all recorded uh, and they're up on the site. Now we get to give you a chance now to let us know, audience, where you're listening from, and maybe what you do. So feel free to, to put up your uh, in the chat your location and uh, the time and the temperature, and we'll let you put it on the screen as well. You should see to the left of your map a wand with a red star at the end. Go ahead and click on that, and then click on the screen. Really fun to have guests from outside of North America. Looks like Peru, Chile, Australia, New Zealand, China, South Korea. I I hope I'm getting you right. So panel, there's your fun audience.
1: Eight okay, so it,
0: was there anything before we begin tonight's discussion that came up last week that you, or 10 days ago, panelists, that you thought about or wish you had said more clearly or wish it had been brought up? We'll just give one second there for any of you to raise your
1: hand if there's something that you wanted to bring up that didn't get brought up last time.
5: Um. I can go ahead and start with that. This is Lisa Nielsen. Um, I don't know if it's not that something that I didn't bring up, but just here where I work in New York City, it's been a very tedious week of standardized tests um, for students. And so, I think the thing that I would bring up um, is that. It's very upsetting to me to see the passion sucked out of students during weeks such as the standardized tests. And I have um, joined several groups on Facebook of very distraught parents whose children have the passion sucked out of them because of these tests. And so um, since our last conversation, I've kind of taken it upon myself to help these parents. Um, get the passion back. So I think that's what's new with me since our last conversation.
1: Thanks, Lisa. And Anybody else want to chime in with anything? Go ahead, Angela.
2: I'm going to add to that um, from the perspective of the teacher, I was a part of the special education chat last night, and I'll get the archives in here, and Michelle Rhee, Um, the former Chancellor of D.C. schools was answering questions about standards and accountability and I can't even count in the chat how many times standardization came up and what differentiates successful learners and what will differentiate their ability to reach the standards is passion and just to see the room absolutely it was you could feel the, the stress of the teachers in the room hearing the same Thing, fighting for their kids, fighting for their kids, especially special education kids. That my God, we have to believe in that they are more than a com- contribution of just basic competencies. And and to see that group of a hundred teachers fighting for passion has me really riled up today because it, it's insane. So I'm going to stick the chat so you can read the transcripts and it was It was hard and frustrating and make tonight's conversation even more important because the people making the laws are not doing it with passion in mind, and it's it's frightening to me
1: Go ahead, George.
4: Yeah, it's interesting to listen because I know I'm the only um, educator here from or the only panelist here from Canada. I just spent um, the last couple of days actually with Alberta Education and all of the superintendents in our province. And passion is a word that we all use when we talk about what we need to do moving ahead and like personalized learning and that's something that's really imperative. I just want to kind of caution people that we there's so many kids that are in public schools and there are parents that maybe don't fight for this because they might not really see it. But it's our job as educators to, to kind of be in that system and work to, to really show why it's a better system. We, can't, we can only do things from the inside. Being outside, it, it's really, really tough. So we have to, there's a lot of educators here that really believe in this. So we need to be in that classroom and I know, or work with teachers and work with schools to ensure that we show proof that this is the way to go for our kids.
1: Amy, you're the only one that didn't chime in. You don't need to, but I wanted to give you a chance if you'd like to. I was way too
3: aggressive last time, so I'm trying to, to keep my passion in perspective, so I'm trying to just be more, you know, tamed, tamed a little bit this time.
0: Okay, so that's a really good springboard for one of the first issues I wanted to talk about tonight. Um, and that is, how pervasive is this understanding of the need for passion? It feels like the cultural narrative around education has largely been obedience and and not passion for so long that i'm since I'm going to guess that most people who think about education, um, let's say parents and community members, aren't going to see passion as the narrative but would see um, memorization and obedience as the main educational narrative. without going too deep again into the cultural. Uh, Do you think that's accurate? Do you think that that this is a small group, that we represent a small group with this perspective and that George is right that there's going to be an amount of time to build
1: this? Or am I somehow misreading this uh, and and do more people understand this than we think, than I think?
5: I'll um, start on this again. I I think it's very on target that um, parents have, unfortunately, um, been put in a position of a place where they're not empowered. Um, I recently, a a couple months ago, saw the film Race to the Top, or Race to Nowhere, I'm sorry, um, a pun on Race to the Top, and what really struck me is that in all at the end of the movie, none of the parents really felt empowered to make much of a difference. As a result of watching that, I wrote a free parent guide on my that's available on my blog called "Fix the School, Not the Child," and it gives parents twenty ideas that they can do um, to empower uh, what they do for their children for learning. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm on these standardized test discussion boards, and What I find appalling and amazing, and I have a blog post coming out about that tonight and tomorrow, is that the school and the government are actually bullying parents who are interested in passion rather than compliance-based learning. And to the point where these parents are giving medical uh, notes from doctors and psychiatrists And they're being forced to make their children do things that are not in their best emotional and physical health. So I think that passion really has to get back into the forefront of this conversation. And we need to remember what the standards were put in place for. And they were for our children to be healthy, happy, satisfied individuals.
0: So Lisa, I really appreciate you bringing that particular movie up. Go ahead and turn your mic off because I got a slight echo. But um, I interviewed Vicky Abellis, the director of Race to Nowhere, and uh, on reflection, it feels to me that that movie even misses the point a little um, because the concern is so much about the time and the stress for students. But I but I kept thinking, well. If the students were actually engaged in things they were passionate about, you would want them to spend that amount of time. So I even felt maybe like Vicky didn't fully see it. So um, anybody else have thoughts on this as a sort of a larger question of how, who writes the narratives of schools and and how do we help change the the narrative if in fact this is the minority narrative?
4: Um, I'll jump in. I think that. Uh, I don't know if this is something that, is, that Hugh is is happening and our educators are really stepping up and saying this en masse. I think there is uh, more and more people doing this. And I think this is, we're learning this is, is a better way for our kids because I don't really think that when I was a kid that my teachers really focused on passion and bringing out the passion of myself. They just taught and uh, and i did I did our exams and did the same thing. Now, we were never at the point where we're doing standardized testing um, the way they are in the states when I was a kid, nor are we now but I think uh if if we as educators provide that narrative and and say why this is better and give facts why this is better that I think it's that is what we're going to start empowering parents, and we need to talk with them because. The bottom line is that if we get this message out into the communities and with all the standardized testing and all these things, that's who the politicians are going to listen to. To be honest with you, they don't often listen to to the educators in the building, and although they should, but they do listen to the community a lot more about what they're looking for. But we need to give that. We need to be the ones that are out there. Um, leading the way because we are, we should be the experts on education and we need to share these stories um, with our staff, with parents, with other people and I think think it's important that we get out there and communicate
1: this more.
2: Steve, can I build on what George said? I think, um, George, you break a really important bridge about changing the narrative. And I think that's an important part of our discussion tonight is that passion is not about a topic. It's not about a project, although our passions and our our narratives and stories together can turn into a project. But passion is about changing the narrative and making it a narrative of mattering. And that's really what fighting for passion is about. It's fighting for mattering in people's lives. And it's really that simple and it's really that difficult. And I started this conversation at my children's school and it didn't go over well because um, it's hard to measure mattering. And yet there is evidence all over the place that schools aren't mattering to kids or the perception from kids and families is that the school, that they perceive the school not to care about anything more than what a score is when we're asking kids, you know, we're asking for our kids to be noticed and cared about, and at the core that's what it's all about. You become passionate and you become really willing to do anything. If this panel asked me to do anything, if any one of you, 74 in this room, and don't ask me this week, (laughs) asked me to do anything, I would move fire. I would move brick walls because you have made me matter and I want you to know that that, that is what makes me significantly want to work beyond any, any realm of any standard someone can set, set for me. It is not about just you know, matching kids to topics they like. It's about matching kids to work and to communities that matter.
1: So I'm going to go out on a limb here. Oh, Amy, please go Amy, ahead, and then I'll go, ahead go after you.
3: Go
1: ahead. No, I'm going to shift gears a little. So if you wanted to respond to that, please do. Oh, seriously, go ahead. We're good. OK. So I'm going to go out on a limb here a little and say something. And I'm curious as to the panel
0: and the audience's reaction. So one of the the things that, seem, that I think I'm noticing is that we have sort of two narratives about being human. And and one is sort of the obedience control narrative, and the other is the engage voluntary narrative. And the web is producing sort of significant change in, in places where the institution has had control of the narrative. So in a place like Egypt or Libya, we're seeing people saying, we're not comfortable with the old narrative, and we want to shift it. But I also see the control narrative kind of reacts really strongly in that circumstance. And so it, it, is it possible that that's part of what we're seeing with the increased testing? Is the the same thing maybe we saw with the recording industry with music, the, the, that it's a reflection of this control narrative wanting to gain back that control that they feel they're losing? And if that's the case, how do, how, how do we build those bridges sensitively, and and specifically, if we understand that that's the case, does it change how we tell the story?
3: I think I can respond to that one. Um, If we really look at this, it's an American thing to be passionate, so that's why I don't understand why there's such a disconnect in education with America, because we are a passionate culture. Um, We practice our passions all the time outside of our work and outside of school. And if we can somehow harness that and replicate it in schools, it's an American thing. There's that that, uh, conversation about we want to be like China, and China wants to be like America. And we really need to take a hard look at what we're all about as Americans. And I think that's one way we can get the heart
2: Back into education. What do you think?
4: I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in. Uh, I think that I think I don't know if it's necessary about control, but I think that a lot of this, a lot of these uh, policies and these things that are happening, are probably a response. To be honest with you, to the economy that's happening mostly well in the U.S. and in other countries. And so we're trying to tighten the bootstraps with our kids because we feel that in the long term if we're doing these things, um, these are the kids that are going to provide that economy. But what we know as educators is that uh, the world is changing quite a bit and a lot of the things that we expected our kids to do a long time ago, um, preparing them, we're preparing them for the kind of the old way, the factory model of not only school but of work and a lot of those jobs that, are, that we used to have in Canada and North America are being shipped overseas to be honest with you because they can do them for a lot less money. And so what we need to show is that when you have kids that are following their passions and doing stuff that they love, they're going to be better at it which is going to lead to them doing better later in life which is going to lead to a boost in the economy. If we can see that long term about why this is actually important to to um, to the future of our not just school but to our society how these kids will go on and be innovative doing great things you know really leading and doing things well you always do better when you love what you're doing like I don't know if it's a fact but I'm pretty sure it is so long I think that long term we have to look at that and I think that the people that are making the policies aren't the educators and they're just seeing We really got to tighten because long term what's going to happen to our economy?
5: Um, I would like to uh, add something to that. And I think right now what's happening in our schools is that we're rewarding our students um, who are best at memorization, regurgitation, and compliance. And we, I mean, in places like where I've lived and worked, there's about a 50% dropout rate. And we consider dropouts, people people often um, group them into categories of students who are lazy or not motivated and whatnot, but now there's a whole new crop of people who are not opting out, who are not dropping out, but they're actually opting out of school. And I'm actually creating a guide for teenagers who are ready to opt out of high school because they want to take ownership for their learning and they would like passion-driven learning, but in our traditional government finance schools, that's no longer possible. So I think that what is going to be the trend of the future is um, the idea of home education and student-centered learning. And I think that that's really going to become a big priority of mine um, as long as we have these standardized tests that are rewarding students really for not following their passions but following industrialized
1: model of education. So Lisa, because we've talked about this before
0: and unschooling and homeschooling, if we've had homeschooling and unschooling and we've had passion-driven education in places like Sudbury or Summerhill or big picture schools, what makes you or the panel believe that people will respond differently now than they have in the past? As much, George, as I want to believe you could make the economic argument, I don't see that being made for the schools that have gone in this direction, and I'm not sure that you fully could make it.
5: I think, to answer your question, I think that as I've – I think social media is going to make a huge difference. As I've been talking to parents and teenagers, they don't know that these other options exist. They've been misled to believe that they have to follow this compliance driven government-mandated education, and as we find more and more, I mean, I know, Steve, that you've interviewed a lot of these people, but there's so many alternatives. I've written about being able to get into college without ever going to school, um, and I've written about being incredibly successful without ever going to college, and I think that it's really, social media is really going to make the difference, and so, you know, you asked what is going to change things and what's going to make the difference. I think social media, writing about it, um, and talking about it and sharing these ideas and I also think that these standardized tests are really going to drive the passion out of students and what's going to end up graduating from high school are not the people that are the people that we need to make our country successful or our nation or world successful.
4: Uh, I'm going to kind of jump in to kind of build upon what you, uh, you uh, said Steve. If you if you look at um, a company like Google and how they do the 20% time and they let people explore uh, things that they are interested in which is being implemented in, in schools right now, um, maybe maybe we are not seeing that but that work environment that we have and we are seeing it being very successful, I think that schools do need to think about what is happening long term and how we are preparing. because. We need to prepare kids for life, and like they, they're living life every day. But we need to prepare them to be successful past school. Um, that that that's a big thing of school. But what's happening is that a lot of these schools that are doing, you know, not going on a passion base, they're preparing kids to be to be good at school, not good at life. And I think that's what we really that's where the shift is. And I think that's that's that long term long term belief is that what are our schools really for? What what are they doing?
2: I want to j- jump wanna, in on Angela, the Angela, you jumped in. Are you
3: going to talk about the Clubhouse classroom, Angela? I'll just start talking. Um the the Clubhouse Classroom is exactly Google, Starbucks, that model replicated in the classroom. Because it is real life, there's a lot of research now. Nell Duke, who did the scarcity of informational text in first grade, their most recent research, um, Nicole Martin and Nell Duke, was on authenticity. And so if we get to the researchy word of authenticity with the word passion, um, we can do that in the classroom. Angela, do you want to expand on that?
2: we built the framework of the passion-driven classroom based on Google's model and curriculum from um, Zappos, which is teaching the standards and practices and protocols of passion-driven work versus passion-driven projects. And at the end of the work, you may or may not, not everybody at Google gets a 20% project that, you know, goes to market and gets an app. But it's, it's about working for an organization that values mattering. And I'm going to be obsessive about that word because that's what the curriculum at, at Zappos is all about. It's how do you make those around you, whether it is your team as a leader or your colleagues or your customers, how do you make them know that you care about them every day? And what are the protocols that have to be in place from the minute you walk in to the minute you leave? They obsess about little things. They obsess about little things. And that's what, it's not big things that change a company's culture. If you read the background of Google or Apple or, or, uh, you know, Starbucks, the foundation is they love their employees and they love their jobs and they come to work every day believing they're a part of something bigger. And that changes everything. And, And it's really simple. The framework's really simple. Say hi to kids in the morning and hug them in the hallways and tell them every day that the work they're doing has a reason behind it, that it matters. And guess what? Kids will work their tails off. They will blow your mind if they know the work they're doing matters.
1: So
0: I want to shift gears again, um, but but I want to leave the panel with a question to think about that we can come back to toward the end. So I lived through the 80s and the total quality movement and I drank the Kool-Aid. And um, sort of in an intriguing way, all of the companies that were doing these great things ceased to be um, as visible. And really, we shifted back to ways of doing business. And maybe a lot of people never even changed. But it felt like during the period of time, we were all in agreement, everything's going to change. And it didn't. So I want to come back to that. And I want to think sort of realistically about human nature and about change. and and what we can do to make a difference. But while we're thinking about that and thinking of responses to it, I want to talk about uh, teacher passions. And I I know you all have something to say about this, but so why
1: is it so important that teachers discover their own passions?
5: Um, I can jump in on that. I I think I've mentioned in the last uh, conversation and much of my writing something called the school-wide enrichment model. And I think to answer that question, we have to bring into play the idea that teachers are not just the adults who get paid to be in the school, but teachers are everyone in the school. And what I love about the school-wide enrichment model, which can be done with the school without any cost or any other software or anything that you're paying for, it's just something that you decide to do, is that... Everyone in the school identifies their passions and everyone can be a teacher and a learner. And so I think that um, it's really important to point out that it's important for teachers to identify their passions, but the teachers can be any age and they can be the staff or they can be the learners um, in the school. And once we start to really identify the passions in the school, people can group together and as I mentioned before, it would be really beneficial for schools to have many more electives where people who share passions are grouped together. And schools might be surprised that some of the people who are the best at particular areas of study are not those who are staff members who are paid and or and or are people from the outside community. And I think that it's really important for everyone's passion to be identified, for everyone to have a passion and talent profile, and for everyone to have the opportunity to connect by their passions and learn together, developing what many of us know as their personal learning network within the school and outside the school.
1: So I'm interested, George, particularly in hearing from you on this topic, because you talked about the imperative that teachers have lives. Do you want to say more about that?
4: Yeah, I think it's I think it's essential that um we are the role models to our kids and it's essential that we know that school is only part of their day. It's not um it's not their entire day. And although especially and I don't want to stereotype, but at the high school level, a lot of teachers that are passionate about the subject matter that they're teaching they they tend to give a ton of homework or an hour of homework here and it tends to add up because maybe they don't work as, as closely to the other teachers in the building that they know what actually kids are doing so we're sending kids that are in school for 6 to 7 hours a day and then they go home with 3 4 5 hours of homework and so i think that once you you get to explore that yourself and understand that the after school and spending time with your family or you know, playing basketball or you know, reading on something that you love. I think that you role model to your kids that you follow your passion, but you're also empathetic of that as well of your students is that after school it's expected that to, to, you know, that we have lives and do these things that we're not hundred percent about school or, you know, there are elements where it feels like just a job, but I think bringing that back to um, to the school is what really matters to to the kids because they identify you not as just the person that tells them what to do. They identify you as a person, and once we build that strong relationship with our kids, that's when we really start to see um, change in our schools. As we do that all that time, and it's so important that we we show that we are that we are a human. We are a part of that
2: and our kids see that every day. I want to add um, to what George said, Steve, because this is why I'm so passionate about the power of networks and, and those that are new to the concept of PLN or PLE or whatever you want to call it, the quickest way to get your passion back and to find your place is to get around another passionate person. It doesn't have to be a network of 700. One passionate person can change your life. They can make you find yourself again. And we have a gift that we can give other teachers. I no longer feel like this problem can't be solved. If this was five years ago, I would be worried that our schools had no way to be saved. But we can save every school because we can give every teacher and every leader that we encounter another individual that will be there for them or hundreds of other individuals that will be there for them and with a network you can, I can, we can all attest to make it through anything and that is the power of social media is that we are not alone and you are not fighting this fight alone and even if you have a crappy situation and you have to go to school with people that aren't passionate those are not your colleagues. Those are just people that occupy the space next to you for a few hours your colleagues are out here, they're waiting for you, and you have a network and that is a gift.
3: I think, um, this is Amy here, that it's that it's a huge responsibility and a necessity for the school leader, the school administrator, the principal, to encourage their teachers to be passionate and to free them up to be creative and We do live in a standards driven assessment world, especially as a principal it's just the reality we live in. I'm not saying we have to stay there, but right now it is. But it's not going to change the fact that I want and require that my teachers feel empowered to think outside the box and to be passionate and allow their students to be passionate. So we also have to make an environment for teachers that isn't toxic to find, you know, reignite their passions and do whatever it takes so that teachers think, why did I become a teacher? Why am I here? And to reignite that because I think there is a panel, um, one of the participants here was saying it gets beaten out of the teachers. We've teacher-proofed everything, but we can take that back and it does start with the leadership.
5: I, I wanted to just add one thing to that. And we talked about teachers building their personal learning networks but I think it's so incredibly important that we help students build their personal learning networks and I understand that people who have joined this conversation today might be doing that, but I speak to educators all over uh, my city, my state, uh, my country and beyond and very few people are doing that and furthermore often social media is blocked in schools and I think that that's a huge travesty and I think one of the things we need to do is something I call thinking outside the ban and breaking the ban and one of my top posts on my blog is uh, the world's simplest social media policy and the world's simplest online safety policy. I have two of them because we get very misled by lawyers and administrators telling us what we can't do and why students can't build their personal learning networks using social media. And I think we need to break down some of those walls, break some of those bands, and empower our students to benefit from these personal learning networks the way many of the educators in this group today are doing.
1: I still have a a hard time moving so fast
0: to the students, but I have a hard time imagining that students can do this without teachers who are doing it. Um, is that Am I being too sort of linear in my thinking about it or is it possible for students to do this with a teacher who hasn't done it him or herself?
5: I want to just jump in real quick and then I'll, I'll stop monopolizing the conversation. But it's no wonder that students aren't doing it. In almost every school they're completely banned and blocked from doing so. It's completely not integrated into the work they're doing and any chance they get to be involved in social media and to be connecting with people who share their passions, they're doing that, but it's not valued in school, it's not allowed in school. So is it any wonder that we're not seeing them in school? I think that it would be great if teachers help them, but furthermore, I think that it would be wonderful if they were allowed to even do this.
4: Yeah, Steve, um, I really think that uh, what you said, I, I actually agree with you that if teachers aren't doing this, it's really hard for kids to do this as well because it's not that they're not going to use social media that that's going to happen it's it's what are they doing on social media because a lot of the kids we're seeing like we're dealing with um lots of schools are not ours luckily uh, are dealing with cyberbullying and you know inappropriate things happening on Facebook or whatever but the the reality of it is that we as educators Have never worked with kids to let them do this. It's kind of become a Lord of the Flies thing where the kids just went out into the world on their own and they just did this um, on their own with no understanding of that. And that's why it's imperative. And that's that's something we worked in our decision or our division to say like we need to open this up because we need to have these conversations with kids because if they're going after school and doing all of this stuff. Then who is who is monitoring them? Who is helping them? Who is who is teaching them uh, what's appropriate? They're just they're just exploring it on their own. And to think that we allow or we have kids going on this unguided, work, working with them, knowing there is a lot of horrible stuff on the internet. Like let's not kid ourselves. There's a ton of it, but we don't work in schools enough to show what is. What's important and how to connect and how to find other people that have similar passions and do that because we're just letting the kids go out on their own. So I really believe that yes, they're going to understand how to use social media, you know, as whatever. But are they using it appropriately? Are they using it to to learn or are they just learning, Are they just using it in a reckless manner? We really need to role model that with our kids and understand it so we can work alongside with them, which is one of the best things because we, at this point, when it's kind of new to us and it's new to them, also opportunity to learn side by side with our kids, which I think is just absolutely empowering to schools.
0: So I'm going to go back to the two narrative question that I asked earlier, and especially George, say in light of what you've just said. So if we operate kind of at two levels, we have sort of different um, ways of believing about uh, our humanness, um, and, and one is sort of fear and control, and the other is sort of freedom and engagement. And, and if there is validity to both, then is there something we can do to balance the two that allows us sort of good next steps in introducing these ideas and the passion-driven model to both the teachers and the parents, to the whole community. Are the specific things that any of you have done where you feel like you've done a really good job of helping to bridge those narratives in a way that got you a step closer?
2: I'm gonna jump in and share, and it may not answer to your question, so you can just um, shut me off if it doesn't. But I think that, again, it goes back to, several of you said this, to being digital citizens. And it's really hard to guide individuals in the rules of the new world when you haven't visited it (laughs) and you haven't lived in it. So you're inviting kids and teachers into this new world and asking them to not only take residence there, but be participating members. And that's crazy if you think of an online example, you wouldn't just go to a different country that you don't speak the language, that you don't know the cultures, and then expect to be a contributing citizen. So there's phases in honoring the new world. So I think that um, one of the ways that I've been trying to help schools and parents do that is to start with the big rule of the new world is this world outside of school honors passion. And they are far more interested in an individual being themselves and contributing the best of themselves in in the way, in the medium that they know how. That it's like Ben Zander, you start with an A on the web, and then your job is to follow the rules of the community and keep the A. And to keep the A, you have to be open-minded, and you have to be um, curious, and you have to be honoring of other individuals in your community, and you have to be kind, and you have to be... Um, you know, the best of who you are as a human. And so I was got recently to be able to share with kids their opportunity to contribute their writing to the world. But before we just made some cute writing projects and then said, oh, I'm going to stick them on, you know, Flickr so the world can see, we went out into the writing community in the world and we specifically looked at the guidelines of what the world demands for writers. And we went to the writing gallery and we went to some blogs talking about powerful writing and these five-year-olds came up with 15 different criteria of what would make writing, I called it wow writing, worthy of the world. And they came up with this criteria, five-year-olds, that it had to be honorable to the reader that it had to be able to get some of the attention and it had to show that you researched your topic and it had to show that you worked hard but that you were open to suggestions and they nailed everything that I just said. And then we worked on what are the tools and spaces to contribute. I think the world is very clear about the place of passion and the the work it takes to do things that make other people um, successful. And if we just open those conversations, we then shared that conversation with parents and with the community and it changed the whole context of social media. It was amazing and this started with five-year-olds, so I don't know if it answers the question or not, but it was something recent.
3: I think um, that service learning, people have known this for years and if you you follow the true service learning model where kids are coming up with a cause, something that will connect them to their greater community and do something for the world, and that's what we want our kids to be able to do is graduate and contribute something positive in the world. Um, That is one way that we can get passion back into our schools, is to follow that model. And we had one at our school, and I talked about this last time, but our seventh graders started as sixth graders with service learning, and they studied underage drinking, high-risk drinking, and access to alcohol. Well, we had a liquor store that was going to go in two blocks from school, were in an urban environment, and they successfully petitioned, the the person withdrew their application, and to make a long story short, they're now nominated for the Governor's Volunteer Award. So their work is going to be recognized, hopefully, by some lawmakers and policymakers. and it all started with their passion project.
0: Amy, if it's okay, I want to ask you kind of a follow-up to this, because you work in the Catholic education system, I believe, and it's been sort of interesting to me over the last couple of years to notice that sometimes religious institutions have an easier time making these shifts. And certainly in in a Catholic school, you're going to face the two narratives sort of very fully. So have you learned anything in the schools that you've worked in that
1: helps to bridge that gap between the narrative of fear and obedience versus the narrative of engagement and passion?
3: It's been very interesting because I went to Catholic elementary school and then from then out I completed public education. I worked for the federal title I program at the government level. I taught in public schools and then I became a Catholic school principal. So I worked in very federal, you know, law mandated environments in schools in need of assistance. Very um, very teacher-proofed, basically told exactly what we were going to teach, how are we going to teach it, etc., um, in most of the school districts I work, but not all. Now that I'm in a private, it's a parochial school, it's that social justice aspect in our Catholic schools that give us permission. I don't know if that's the correct word, so I've been trying to wrap my brain around the differences and what makes it different. It's almost like we have permission to, to do this kind of work because of the social justice responsibility that we have and we want our students to graduate with. So that's an awesome question. I don't know if there's any other panelists and what their thoughts are, but we definitely don't have, um, yes we have standardized tests and we're very, we use those instructionally and, and we misuse them too. I mean, we're, I'm honest, but we're not, it doesn't make or break our learning environment.
1: I think the theme that I've noticed is that when you have uh,
0: sort of an agreed social mission, it does seem like you're able to focus on that in a different way. But George, uh, one of the things I loved about the the previous panel discussion was your mentioning of the teachers being able to choose their own pd has Has that started um, has that been a as positive a thing as I'm thinking it would be?
4: Yeah, it's it's been really huge in our school because um, it, it, we we still align with our school goals and we still have to you know we we follow with um, what our division does in Alberta Education so um, we do we are accountable to to those goals but we do give teachers choices in the areas that they want to explore and we don't say well there's got to be ten per group there's got to be There's as many that are interested in that area, so we could have one group that's 25 um, and one group that's 2. So it doesn't really matter, it's about those people being really excited about what they're doing. And what happens is is a couple things. When you let people explore their passions and what they love in the school, they become better at it and then their engagement and excitement um, drives others. Because we all love listening to the passionate speaker. not, no matter what they're talking about, we get sucked into that. And so if we have a bunch of people that are very excited about something, we move our whole school ahead. The other thing that I think it's led to is um, is that our teachers are, are kind of exploring and doing this, not in the uh, sit and get model where we bring in a speaker and someone talks to them about what we're trying to learn, but they actually have the opportunity to explore and go further with what they're doing. And so what that does is it puts them really back into that role of learner and they're seeing what works for them and getting the opportunity to to understand uh, how that works. And you're seeing a lot of that same model that we do with our teachers and how they learn is what it's kind of filtering down to their students is that they're allowing them because they all know that sitting there and most of us that have done any um, in service with educators know that that's probably the toughest group to stand in front of and speak because um, they are used to being in front of the classroom or whatever but when you get them to be in an environment where they love learning and they do that and they, they Transfer that down to the classroom. That's that's really powerful. I know um, Patrick Larkin. I see. I see. He's in the room, and he talked about. Or his soul school is working together to uh, bring social media and bring iPads for their kids. But what's really cool is they're going to be learning alongside with those kids. And when when we do those things, um, and we we have that opportunity to do that with our kids or with our teachers, it works with the kids because they know how to they. You're back in that role of learning.
0: Has anybody done anything like this with parents? Angela, I know you ask a question of educators, the what do you love question. Has anybody done an exercise with parents that's really helped to bring this out for them, their own interest in pursuing their own passions, and and why that
1: would then be valuable for their children?
2: I haven't um done anything yet specifically but have several engagements in the next month planned. I shared a blog post earlier in sparking the conversation at my son's school about having teachers really, you know, I want to know do teachers notice my child? Do they are they just a number? Do they care? And when I was asking those questions not in a confrontive way to my children's teachers it made them very uncomfortable because the conversation isn't normally one that you have. And so from that blog post I've been contacted by several parent organizations and this is a a topic that's of importance to them. And really in the, the internet dialogue around that as Lisa has experienced, parents really want very simple things just like kids. They're sending their best to school. They're not like leaving, you know, the bad ones at home. They're sending their best. And they just want someone to notice that their child is a gift in the smallest, simplest way. They don't care. I know that there's some that say they care about a test score or a grade. But deep down, they care about their child being valued and successful. And that's really just bringing that to the attention of the conversation, I think, that makes parents really look at their lives as adults and say, wow, am I living the life I want? What do I want for my child? And most will say, I want them to have a better, happier, more successful life than I did. I, I want them to be prepared to not go through the challenges I did. That's at the heart of most of the conversations I've had with parents. You've made me think about something. Um, I also
3: feel that there's, there's almost a shift in parents, I and mean, I think in their hearts. I mean, as a parent myself, I all I really want is the teacher to care about my child, to know what they're doing, and to value and give my child attention. I mean, that's. But but there's also a movement of parents that it's it's almost. You're not. You're if you're not pressuring and having a high test score, if you can't say to your 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 coffee club that my child's accelerated or they have a cognitive ability score of whatever. I mean, there's also that out there. And and I wonder how, how that came to be. Because really, I bet deep down in their hearts, if they had a choice, if they absolutely had a choice, I know they would pick a passion-driven, caring teacher.
1: So this is
0: going to be a little off the wall, Amy, but I think you have the resident expert wall and, and don't you have the parents uh, fill out some kind of a form where
1: they indicate the strengths or gifts of the child?
3: There is um, some lessons that we used, I mean, just as a classroom teacher, where the, at, the, at the beginning of school, you have a pre-conference with parents. And the whole purpose, we call them listening conferences, and it was just to listen to the parent or the guardian and they would tell about their child what their likes were, what their dislikes were, what their strengths were, and what they wanted for their child. And through that conversation you would also learn about their specific funds of knowledge as a parent. So in that beginning interview, and it's a very first positive interaction with the parent, it just sets the stage for the parent for the, for the year. So that the resident expert wall is something a little different.
0: Well, so as Lisa would say, I'm having this light bulb go off in my head, what if you actually did some exercise with the parents that asked about their strengths and talents, and and maybe even involved them with the larger parent group, not necessarily fully for the practical, but just for the recognition that that, that kind of an exercise really makes a human difference? And would allow them to feel engaged, where they could actually put up on a wall the things that they do well and their talents and skills, that the students could see
1: as well as the teachers.
4: I'm going to jump in, Steve. Uh, we just did education planning with our staff, and uh, we we invited some parents. Now we couldn't invite all of them because it's just it's just too big of a of a group. But what was really interesting is that we really talked about um, uh, passion and uh, personalized learning and what our parents and staff came up with on their own was the opportunity for parents to come in and do afternoons where they have conference or they have uh, sessions where they would teach about what they love and what they're passionate about. So we're bringing that community into school where our parents are sharing that learning and we would have the kids um, through K-6 sign up for the sessions that they actually want to go through, so you have kids exploring what they love from parents uh, sharing that passion, so that's something we're looking to implement next year in, in the school, but it's really cool because it's it's the community sharing that passion and, and doing that, so we're really excited about that opportunity.
0: This is the moment that I always hate, which is we're <laughs> at the end. But that was really a fun conversation. Uh, Amy, we didn't get to talk as much about the um, clubhouse classroom as I would have liked. So let's you and me email separately on that and and see about maybe um, doing a follow-up on that. Uh, Yes, I know it's really hard to go. Uh, I'm going to clap now for our panel. Uh, Again, this is the second time in a couple of weeks, and that's a real sacrifice. But uh, delightful to have you talking about this subject, and hopefully. We'll follow all of you, and and as you continue to think about it and and talk about it uh, tomorrow night, Hugh McGuire on LibriVox, the crowdsourced recording service that I love. Uh, on Thursday, Paul Kimmelman on his book The School Leadership Triangle. Then next week, uh, The Winner's Brain and The Art of Nonconformity. <laughs> this should be a great week. Uh, and then after that, uh, Steve Denning on Radical Management. And Sir Ken Robinson on his new, well, his revised version of his book Out of our minds. So lots of fun coming up. Thanks again to the panelists. Thanks everybody for coming tonight. I'll stick on for about 15 minutes to allow the chat to go. If you would like to save the chat, you can do so at any time watching the recordings. But right now you can also go up to File, Save, and click on Chat Conversation. And it lets you save the chat conversation if you would like to read through it. And a night like tonight it was really
1: hard to see all of the, the chat. So thanks everybody. Have a great evening and hope um, I really enjoyed it. Hope you did as well. So panelists, I hate to quit, but I, I do have a commitment to ending on time so people know they don't have to feel bad if they go. Of course, there's always more to talk about, but I really felt like you each did a terrific job tonight, and I appreciate it. Peggy, I'll let the recording go because the, the, there's still chat, and people can see
0: the chat. And sometimes people want to talk a little bit afterwards. and Lots of nights I don't have that freedom, but I do tonight.
1: If anybody wants to raise any points or talk about anything that didn't get discussed. Feel free to raise your hand if you'd like to do so. That's the hand with the green up arrow at the bottom of your participant window. Angela, I'm really curious about this issue of
0: um You know, is this another fad what, what's what what can be different about this period of time, even though we 're feeling it it 's more immediate there are better communications tools if in fact we 've seen periods of time like this where we sort of believed that we were going to go to a more human model for say education or for business um you know uh, what do we have to do to help make sure we don't we don't fall back into that primary fear control narrative that just almost always seems to be the one
1: that um, ends up winning.
2: That's a great question, Stephen. I think part of it is getting our narrative right because I think the word, which is why we use the word passion in the book, in and of itself is scary because it elicits so many emotions. Some see it as very positive and some see it attached to a certain topic or product. and some see it as, as dangerous like oh you just let kids go out of control or teachers and learn whatever they want when really that's why we balanced it with the content of Dan Pink's book, Drive, that this is all about really deep, deep, deep learning that is is so embedded in long-term study and long-term commitment. My definition of passion in the beginning is doing work that matters when the fun is gone. It's not that doing you know, that passion work is bad and terrible, but the root of passion is to suffer. And when you're doing work that matters, you are willing to suffer. You're willing to fight for it. And I think there's no, that's where the revolution is. That's where the line in the sand is for business, for industry, for individuals, is that um, finding your, finding the work that matters to you and finding a cause and a vision to fight for and fight in, we have a chance to do that now, and this is definitely not a fad um, absolutely not a fad
0: So let me push back a little, and I'm not trying to be negative, but I'm trying to sort of sort this out of my own mind to figure out a strategy but but you know Dan Pink's drive mentions research that we've known for decades now about compensation and individual performance and understanding what really drives people for what they do. And yet the financial crisis is in many ways sort of a testimony to the fact that most businesses don't operate that way. And so is this sort of deep thought narrative about education, is it always going to be the secondary narrative because it is deep thought? And if that's true, do we change our strategy because of it? Do we not try and have it be the primary narrative, but just do a really good job with it where it exists
1: or where we can help make it exist?
2: the great question, and if you look at, and I'm using the business world and the social world as an example, if you look at the companies that have sustained this economic crisis, the companies and the systems that are thriving, their shift, and they talk openly and explicitly about it, is they have flipped or or they have re-emphasized the narrative being about passion, love, happiness, relevance, and indispensability. So nearly every business book in the in the best selling business books come out either start or end or talk explicitly. One of my favorite ones is Love is a Killer App. <laughs> love is the Killer App by um, oh my gosh, I forgot his name. I'll remember it later. But from Steve Farber as a leader in the business world talking about love as a foundational principle to the CEO and SEO of, of um. of uh, Starbucks to literally the explicit curriculum by by Zappos, where literally your job is to deliver happiness. <laughs> we are not selling products we're delivering happiness, so the conversation in the the web in the world is about loyalty and it 's about um, social entrepreneurship and social movements for the good and the mission of of causes worthy and whether that's a company working on a cause, that's what the narrative is in every other world except education. It's not a secondary narrative for any company or institution that wants to stay in business. It's a hard financial There's lots of data on huge amounts of money being lost because of employee dissatisfaction. Four out of ten workers, or I don't know what the latest stat is, are dissatisfied with their job. The airline industry is the perfect example of standardization. If we want to fight for standardization, the airlines are standard. The script is given to the the flight attendants. They read it. There's no personalization. They've taken away every little thing. And when there is another alternative, people will take it because there is no loyalty. The only reason, they have butts in their seats is because there's no other alternative and the only airline industry is making a profit JetBlue and Southwest are doing so because their narrative is about passion, customer service and doing whatever it takes to meet the needs of customers.
1: This is a fascinating discussion. You know, and I
0: love Southwest, but I'm, you know, I'm guessing that if we had somebody from the airline industry that they would tell you that there has to be a balance between, you know, the structure required to run a business and keep things financially sound and the creative passion. And I keep sort of coming toward this this uh, story or narrative that that brings the two together. And John C D Brown talks a lot about it in his book, *A New Culture of Learning*. The sort of the, you have the culture which is the constraining culture, and then you have culture which is like unmitigated growth in a petri dish. And you have to combine the two in order to succeed. And it feels to me as though talking about it in that way, of the combination of the two, is palatable to both to both interests. It's the combination of providing structure and freedom. Um, and those of you who've heard me talk about this, I apologize, but to me that's sort of what democracy is. It's freedom within structure, and free market economics is freedom within structure. And so. For me, I'm trying to figure out how you tell that story in education. It's the
1: combination story.
2: I love that, Steve, and that's exactly what I think you said, freedom within structure. That is exactly why you wrote The Passion-Driven Classroom, because passion isn't topics gone wild. It really isn't at all a book about kids that love cars studying cars for the whole year and trying to wrap curriculum around cars when another kid loves frogs. It absolutely is freedom and honor within a structure. So what we provided in the passion Driven Classroom was what is the environment that ignites individuals explicitly to to know that they matter, to be a part of a community, to be a part of work that matters, and to commit emotional labor, to contribute emotional labor to work that's really hard because the passion-driven classroom is about doing hard work that matters and being able to study the techniques and the strategies of mathematicians in the world, of scientists in the world, and historians in the world, and writers in the world that do that work well and then working like they work so that whatever you decide that you're going to contribute to the world that you know what kind of team that you have to pull together to make it happen. And it's a very simple framework that begins in the morning by saying hello to kids, honestly. And at the end of the book, we interviewed 500 kids for the book. And at the end of the book, we ended up finding out that really what kids do, what would make them run to school and what would make them stay there after hours is if at the end of the day, they knew a teacher loved them, they knew a teacher cared about them, they knew a teacher noticed them, they knew a a, a teacher would miss them if they were gone, and it's such a simple framework to wrap around all of our content that you will do hard work if you know it matters and you if you know that somebody else believes you can do it. So that
0: really brings me to the scale issue, which is what I hear you describing, I feel like that's a very local process, very much dependent on uh, a local educational culture and individuals who can make a difference. So does that lead us in a direction of then sort of thinking about uh, how we provide freedoms within structure from an administrative teacher level, that we really have to allow a lot more freedom locally so that these kinds of cultures can be built? And if so, how do we mitigate the downside of feeling like providing that freedom may mean that some kids don't get that?
2: You said a really important word, and I don't know if we said it enough tonight, this is a cultural issue. And if you look at Google, it's a culture. So even though they're an employee of Google, it's a culture. And so if you look at entrepreneurship, it's a culture, of a a, a community. And if you look at any successful company or school, that passion is a part of the culture. And what, what builds in the culture, what makes the culture different, It's not big decisions, it's very little things. Somebody, I think Peggy said earlier, I was able to study the the Ritz-Carlton culture and that if you go into a Ritz-Carlton, the systematic training like at Zappos was every little thing matters. They call it Kaizen. Toyota used this. Um, Guy Kawasaki talks about it in his book Enchantment. That it's all the little things like the CEO of JetBlue putting a a post-it note, a handwritten post-it note in random employees mailboxes. That is the totality of all these very small things and that is what kids tell me over and over. 500 kids said the same thing. They didn't talk about technology at all, hardly at all. They said well, once my teacher you know, gave me a sticker or once my teacher noticed that, that was this and and it is that feedback that kids know they were heard every day and that you honored their contribution every day. And adults need the exact same thing. So these these are what I call the conditions of passion. That's what we have to get right. And the conditions have to be embedded in the protocols and in the narrative in that language. And that's why our language is really important. Just very simple things like saying to kids, you know, we're not going to do just a writing assignment, kid, or we're not going to, you know, let you put your writing in a, you know, in a Wordle. We're going to make sure that your writing is worthy of the world. And the world is waiting for you to contribute that. So here's what we have to study in order to do that. The language we use is our most powerful superpower. And we have to think really carefully about that.
0: So here's what I imagine happening. Writing notes randomly really makes a difference. So somebody says, "Okay, you now, teachers or principals, we're going to ask you every day to spend 20 minutes writing notes. And it becomes kind of a policy. So uh, what do you do to build the
1: opportunities for that kind of engagement without building policies that, that turn into just more mandating?
2: I just shared uh, a protocol, and I call it HART. And it sort of summarizes. I summarized it in the book a little bit, The Passion-Driven Classroom, but I've really, really honed this down. And it's a daily procedure, and we're really good at daily schedules in school. So I can break this down into two minutes. I can break this down into a 48-minute class period or a three-hour class period or all day. But if we break down our protocols every day and we start with H, which is hearing students or hearing teachers at a staff meeting, what if we started with every staff meeting and we asked stu- teachers to share? what they're excited about or what they did at the beginning before we jumped in with content. And then once you have their ear, which is the EAR, then you help them manage their energy. How much energy is it going to take to expand that idea or to, or to answer that question or to do what you're thinking about? And then you want to set those goals audaciously. So the A is audacious. And these, and I think that that's a big deal. What changed kids is when you said you know what, this needs to be shared with the world. You have an idea so brilliant, it needs to be shared with the world. That's why people aren't embracing the web because they don't feel that their ideas are worthy of something bigger. Having audacious goals. The R is giving them a reason to work hard. That this is not simple. Nothing that's worth anything that matters is simple. So giving them a reason and then ending the day. So if we built all of our content around that, an audacious goal, that you have to manage your time and your energy and, and your work toward because it matters that much. And at the end of the day, you close with what the JetBlue CEO did by telling them, telling learners explicitly and deliberately why their presence mattered in the day. And even if you skip the middle and you started, and that's how I start with schools, two minute routine in the morning and a two minute routine in the afternoon. The first two minutes starts with going in and saying nothing going in and listening to kids and listening to what they're thinking about, what they're wondering about, what they're excited about, what they have discovered. And then the last two minutes of the day is telling them what you noticed that they did that was an amazing contribution to their own learning or someone else's. It's a really simple framework and it can be, it can be scaled in gigantic levels. I've done it at whole school levels, preschool to high school super simple.
0: So again just to because this is a fun conversation, we're in the middle of a, you know, large national debates about education. So within the constructs of the conversations that we're having about education or education reform, knowing that different principals or different teachers would have different ways of doing things that would still fall within that model. What how do we add to this larger reform dialogue in a way that would help to make a difference? What side are we on? Uh, uh, what,
1: what, is it we, what is it we would say about how the system needs to change?
2: in the chat room, you guys are adding all of this amazing content. I feel terrible that I'm talking about listening to people and their contributions and you guys are rocking it. Does anybody want to answer that question? that Steve
1: had. You have amazing things to say. Listen, Someone uh, take the mic. Group, I'm, you can raise your
0: hand by clicking the hand with the green up arrow. I'm I'm really interested in the role we should be playing in the education reform dialogue. Go ahead, Maria. Hello.
3: I hope you can hear me. Um, what I um want to say is I think even In this room, there are so many people who are building things, and I think we should all continue building systems and diverse ideas and uh, diverse groups, and this is what uh, the contribution can be. Uh, If we keep building, uh, and most of the things won't work, but some will, and eventually things will happen.
1: So Maria, Maria I like for that. sharing that. Go ahead, go, Angela. Go.
2: I was just thanking Maria for sharing that. Beautiful.
1: So um, I'm not sure Maria was saying this, but if if the idea is just to keep building and being
0: constructive, does that, you know, wh- where do we fit on that spectrum of dialogue right now? Should we be marching in Washington? Should we be, you know, what should we be doing? to be a part of this really large discussion on education reform or do we just opt out of that knowing that large national discussions often lack depth and just work as hard as we can in the areas where we feel we can make a difference?
1: I'm
2: with Mandy. We can absolutely not opt out. We can't. Um, We cannot ask kids to to grow up and be contributing members of society willing to fight for something if we don't model that. So I am going to do something every day um, to keep the fight. I think that there isn't one avenue or one way to get the message out. I think there's every way and we have to take every one of them. And I see it already happening. So I see people blogging about this like no tomorrow. I see 87 people in the room tonight on an evening night. I saw Peggy and I saw hundreds of people all over the world on a Saturday morning. Um, So this is important having we're working right now on trying to get a space where we're all supporting each other so we have so we are telling a consistent story of what can be done and what is being done and we are not waiting for Superman I don't care where you are you are super men and women and you have to to know that or you cannot um, you can't help if you don't believe that you matter in this fight um, I also think which is a a new focus for both Lisa and I, is engaging parents in this conversation, not as um, a force against schools, but as a a force to fight with schools to remain relevant. is very, very important. And I think their voice is missing from this conversation. And, And I absolutely think kids' voice is missing from this conversation. And one of the most compelling things that I have been doing lately is videotaping conversations with kids. I haven't had time to get them off my computer yet, but kids are very clear on what they want and what they need and what they're willing to do if somebody tells them they're important. Um, So I think that every avenue, every venue, that that's the beauty of social media is that it can be said in a million different ways and we have to to do that in every medium in, in I guess um, igniting our own networks individually, but pulling the movement together collectively. And I don't really have the answers, but I have a network who does have the answers.
0: Well, uh, I think you and I had a conversation earlier today which sort of plays into this. And and again, I'm thinking out loud, but also trying to see if the conclusions I've come to are accurate. You know, one conclusion I'm coming to is that helping parents, students, and teachers Discover their own passions and talents and interests it is a lever um, that it that's it's going from A to B knowing that then from B they can lead to C so I really loved that idea of gathering everybody together the parents the teachers the students, and doing you know what do you love what are you good at you know putting this up on a wall somehow and doing an exercise with everybody together that sort of gets you in that mode of thinking about how uniquely valuable and different we are. So Jay Leung 10, you have the mic. I'm Do you know how to turn your mic on if you don't? It's the larger microphone to the lower left that gives you the ability to turn your mic on. There you go.
2: Okay. Uh, I just wanted to, to jump in on, on the question about, you know, do we just stay focused in our own buildings or do we try to work beyond that? And I, I worry that we run the risk of feeding our profession to people who don't understand or who, you know, see education as a series of steps to be mastered instead of part of growing. Um, I think we have to be our own advocates and be our own best. You know, I don't
3: know that I can personally affect what's happening in Washington with education reform but I'm going to be writing letters and I'm going to be writing tweets and I'm going to be writing
2: blog posts and I'm going to be talking about it with my students and my parents so that we make sure together that we're we're doing what's best for kids.
1: So I really like that um, and I also like it because it
0: respects the fact that there is no single reform movement. You know, There are a lot of different views. There, there are a lot of people who are feeling uncomfortable with the current nature of high-stakes
1: testing, but that doesn't mean that they all agree on the solutions. So I'm, that's a, you've brought a good balance to it.
2: I think when we feel in, uh, not empowered we have to remember this. It costs nothing, zero, zero, to let another human being know that they matter. And that's where passion comes through. That's when people are willing to give it their all because passion requires emotional contribution and emotional labor and if you can't tap into their heart, if you can't tap into that emotion you don't have their cognitive power, you don't have any power so I think it's really important to know that it doesn't take anything more than a smile or a nod or a tweet or a retweet if you will. You don't even have to tweet 140 characters just click retweet, that that is a recognition that you see the talent or the ability or that you noticed another person. And that's how the network grows. It grows one tweet at a time. And then if we take those and and multiply those by thousands of acts of kindness and thousands of acts of passion, then we have something. And I already know that just right now. And it's not, you don't have to go up against the government you as a single second grade teacher or me in, a, in my basement in Iowa or Steve because it's, it's even bigger than that. It's above them and around them and underneath them and they'll notice because we will be a force that's, un, that's unstoppable. And that is what is so motivating to me is this change can happen in an individual classroom from an individual act and it costs nothing. It costs nothing. And we can make someone else's day and we can change someone else's life in a nanosecond in less than 140 characters without even saying a word by simply noticing that their presence is a gift.
0: So I noticed from my own self, Angela, that um, I can stay focused at a deep thinking level on something for a certain period of time. But uh, I, I can't keep too many balls in the air. It's hard to really juggle a lot of deep topics. And so I'll often leave one to move to another to think deeply. And the one I've left sometimes sort of forms itself into simplistic ideas. So I think that's part of what I like about the passion narrative is that it, you know, it, it's, um, it's a simple idea that encompasses some complexity so that you can kind of put it in a box and then come back to it and dive deeply. Um, my wife and I did for years this, parent, this positive discipline um, Set of workshops. We actually led workshops on parenting, uh, getting trained in the positive discipline model. And I, uh, I really like positive discipline because the, just the phrase itself recognizes the two the, sort of the two different narratives: the positive and the discipline, and the merging of the two. And I feel that way about democracy. That democracy we see as a process, and we value it because of the engagement. But when we think about education, we're thinking about outcomes rather than the engagement or the process. So, for me, I feel like it, we have to be—we have the message has to be one that allows for depth of thought, but also can kind of be encapsulated in such a way that when it's not our primary focus, we understand. We can come back to it with depth.
2: That's a great point, Steve. Because this passion discussion doesn't have to be, you know, deep like we've got to change the world of schools. You can change literally an individual. Don't think about maybe even changing their lives. is too heavy on your shoulders. Thinking about making somebody's day. So a really good question to ask ourselves and to ask each other is what makes us happy? What makes an individual smile? Because when you're smiling, you can get a lot more done than when you're feeling stressed. Simply smiling biologically changes you. So what makes somebody happy? What makes your kids happy? Have you asked them? What makes your staff happy? So just by asking that question and then, you know, borrowing from Zappos, delivering on that happiness. That's how passion begins because when happy people get together, they usually do good together. And it's not, you know, it sounds flowery and rainbows, but you know what, it is sometimes. It is those very simple um, statements that make somebody's day. I cannot tell you how many Twitter messages I get, in fact, just today, thank you for noticing me, thank you for sharing my tweet. Like, It's such a huge deal to people when something simple gets noticed or, or you get smiled back at it. it. doesn't have to be like we're going to go change the law today or we're going to you know, break down our system and start a charter school. It really is simple. Make somebody happy.
0: Could we come up with a two-word phrase, like positive discipline, that encompasses both stories? I mean, culture. I like the word culture and being used in two ways, but that's a little complex. Is there another word we could pair with passion that would sort of uh, give allowance to the multiple audiences? Um, (laughs) Your homework, team. Like structured passion, or something you know that says that allows you to sort of, from the duality of the phrase, tell the multiple stories. I don't know. I'm just. Really, Steve,
2: that is what we struggled the most with in the book is the word to pair with passion, and we ended up driven because we wanted to pair those two narratives, the biology and the science of what it takes to be driven by something, and then the passion and everything that, and, and post those two together, passion driven, because then then you get both those, and it, but I think there can be two other ones. Um, Besides that, but I think that we spent more time figuring out the second word to pair with passion. Ooh, strategic passion. Oh, I'm liking that. Um, Yes. So this is not a simple like yes or no answer. This is seriously homework. I want you guys to think about it because it will define our narrative. It will define our story.
1: (laughs) Okay. We've gone half an hour. I think that's
0: long enough. Angela, you're great. I don't know if Lisa's still there, but Lisa was terrific as well. That was a great session tonight. I really appreciated it. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Really fun conversation. Again, if you want to save the chat, I'll give you a couple of minutes. Go to File, Save, and you can save the chat. Uh, As well, you can save it in a recording, so don't worry if you don't get it now. I will try and post the recordings tonight. Uh, I do have to ask you to actually exit the room in order for the recording to process. So you do that by going up to File and Exit or clicking on the X at the top right of your screen, not the
1: X below the participant window, but the X to close it out. Thanks, Angela. I guess she's gone. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night. Rob, if it's okay with you, uh, I need another day or two to figure out
0: um, some of your BloggerCon stuff, but I will get back to you. So thanks so much for taking that on. I better turn the recording off. Have a good night, everybody. Bye.